Chapter 8, Getting Paid. Hey there, I'm Eric Olson. And I'm Kevin Daisy. Join us on our journey to building a $100 million company. Hey, what's happening? This is Eric J. Olson. In January of 2021, I published a book named Million Dollar Journey. I had the audio for that. It's on audible.com, but I'm going to share it with you right here on this podcast. So this is a chapter from the book. Some of these episodes are going to be long. Some will be short, but I'm going to read the whole thing to you. One chapter at a time. Here you go. After hearing it, let me know what you think on Instagram. I hang out there at eric.j.olson. That's E-R-I-K.j.olson. And without further ado, here's a chapter from Million Dollar Journey. Most of us start our own businesses for one of two reasons. Some have a burning desire to work on their own terms and aren't too interested in business matters unless it impacts their ability to create. Others may have that passion too, but are in it primarily to earn a living or grow an empire. Regardless of the reason, in the end, you have to get paid for your work. Asking to get paid can feel like an awkward conversation for most new entrepreneurs. They're proud of their work, but it seems aggressive or even taboo to ask to get fairly compensated. It shouldn't be this way, and it doesn't have to be. You're doing great work, and that work brings inherent value. Make sure you get paid for the value you provide. But unfortunately, getting paid is not straightforward at all. It's complex, and much of getting paid rests on the expectations you establish at the onset of working with a client. Here, we'll review several different ways you can charge for your work, along with the pros and cons of each. Billing by the hour. Almost all entrepreneurs who provide a service start off charging by the hour. This is the default billing mechanism for so many because it's easy for the entrepreneur. When you're new at something, when it's one of your first projects, you simply don't know how much time it's going to take you. Sure, you can guess how long it'll take, but you also realize that you want to get paid for your work even if it ends up taking longer than you guessed. You equate money to time. Likely, your previous jobs paid you by the hour, so it seems natural to you. Getting paid by the hour works fine when you're a freelancer doing work on the side to make extra money. The short-term predictability of the model is enticing too. You know that if you put in four hours and charge, say, 50 bucks an hour, then it'll make $200. That's easy to understand and may seem like a win-win to you early in your journey. But there are problems with this model that you'll uncover as you take on more clients. Part of the problem with billing by the hour is that you're working for time. If you don't put in the time, you don't make the money. So although you can make good money working by the hour, you're capped by your hours. Worse, you have to keep putting in the time. There's no scaling your time. Time literally equals money. 
There's no opportunity to separate the two. So you have to keep slaving away or you can't bill. There are no efficiencies. The second problem with working by the hour is that you can't invoice your customer until after you've put in the time. After all, you don't know how much time a project will take, so you can't invoice them accurately until after the work is done. For longer projects, you'll likely agree to build them every week or two, but you can't predict how many hours you'll burn through in that amount of time. Since you're billing after the fact, also known as in arrears, you're having to wait to receive payment for the work you've already done. There's a lag between when you work, when you provide value, and when you can reap the reward for the value you provided. The longer that delay, the more of a cash flow problem you create. As a one-person freelancing shop, that lag is not a big deal. After all, freelancing provides newfound money, so what's the difference if you get paid upfront or in arrears? As long as the client doesn't stiff you, that is. But once you have an employee or two or 10, the model becomes much harder to sustain. Employees like to get paid on a regular basis, regardless of when you get paid. Since you're billing in arrears, that means you'll end up paying your employees before you get paid by your client. Since you're fronting the money for your employees to work on your client's project, you are literally funding your client's work. You are also taking all the financial risk. Sometimes a client just won't pay. And that means the money you paid your employees to work on that client project is for not. Another big problem with billing by the hour is that you're not charging for the value you provide. Only for the time it takes to create it. Sometimes there can be a big difference between the time value of the work it takes to create something and the value that it provides the client. Imagine if you put in a week's worth of work, 40 hours, into solving a problem. If you bill at $100 an hour, then you'll get paid $4,000. Sounds great, right? But what if your work results in your client making or saving $10,000 a month? If they will continue to realize that value month after month, then their value from your work is $120,000 a year. If your client can make $120,000 in a year, then do you think they'd be willing to pay more than $4,000 for the solution? Of course, you want to provide great value to your client and they need to profit from your work, but you left a lot on the table. How do you price the work differently you'd likely be able to charge more for that exact same work. Maybe twice as much. Shoot, maybe more. Does paying $8,000 for a $120,000 return sound like a good deal to you? It does to me. How about paying $12,000 for a $120,000 return? That still is a great value. It's possible that you could charge two to three times more for your work if you priced your work differently. When you bill by the hour, you're pegging your pay to time and labor instead of the value you provide. By doing that, you've turned yourself into a commodity. 
the goal of buying a commodity is to buy it for as little as possible. By pricing by the hour, you're almost begging prospects to compare your hourly rate to the hourly rate of others. Most often, they'll pick the cheapest. Sure, you can try to convince them that you provide superior work, excellent craftsmanship, blah, 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 but everyone else is making the same promises too. A final problem with billing by the hour is that clients generally hate it because there's uncertainty. When a client hires you by the hour, they don't like the fact that they don't know how many hours it'll take you to complete the job. Shoot, you don't even know. They likely have a final budget in mind that you probably don't know about. And they've calculated how many hours, based on your rate, they're willing to pay you to complete the project. That number will likely not match with the number of hours you're thinking it will take to finish the project. If you even have an idea at all, and likely will not match what it will actually take. None of this, by the way, is typically communicated between you and your client because you're both predicting the final cost of the project. It's in their best interest for you to put in as little time as possible to keep the cost down. But it's in your best interest, honestly, to put in more time to maximize what you get paid. So although you're billing by the hour, the client has done the math and is thinking in terms of overall budget. You may have agreed on an hourly rate, but their objective is to limit their financial risk and pay less rather than more. To achieve this objective, you'll find that they'll not only want an hourly rate, but they'll also want you to commit to the number of hours it'll take. And that's when the hourly model breaks down. Once you give an estimate for the number of hours a project will take, you've committed yourself to that estimate. By doing so, you've essentially committed to a fixed price project where the maximum you can charge is set by your hourly rate and the number of hours you said it'd take. But you also could be paid less if, for the same work, it ends up taking less time. In effect, you've committed to covering the risk of overages while giving back money if the project goes faster than expected. From your perspective, there's more risk and at the same time, less reward. That's the worst of both worlds for you. If you finish in fewer hours than expected, then you'll get paid less than the overall estimate. If you finish in more hours than expected, then you'll get paid your hourly rate times the original estimate of hours. If you try to go back after the project and tell the client it actually took you more hours to complete the project than you estimated, you'll be in for a fight. They'll exert extreme pressure for you to honor your estimated number of hours. Believe it or not, you'll feel compelled to bill for fewer hours than it actually took you in order to either avoid that fight or to appease your client. So even though you told them you want to get paid by the hour, you end up sort of working by the hour and sort of working like a fixed price project. 
I've done this on numerous occasions. When I was billing by the hour, and if I knew my client's final budget, I'd invoice for fewer hours than it took me in order to fit into their budget. As an example, if a project took me 40 hours to complete, but the client could only afford 32 hours at my hourly rate, then I'd only bill for 32 hours. Every time I did that, I'd make an excuse to myself for why I undercharged. Perhaps I had to do some research and I didn't charge for that, or I didn't charge for meetings, or I justified not charging the client for the time it took to answer their questions and to create the reports they requested, or some similar excuse. Talk to any freelancer who bills by the hour and you'll hear excuses like these. It's much easier to justify why you're not charging by the hour, like you said you would, than to try to bill for all of the time you put into a project when you knew the client was capped at a total project cost. Avoid falling into the trap of wanting to satisfy your client, which means meeting their budget, even if that means not billing for all of your hours. If the client actually has a fixed price, then you should consider a fixed price budget instead. Fixed price projects. Charging by the project or fixed price projects is a big step up from charging by the hour. A fixed price project means that when a prospect asks you for a price, instead of quoting your hourly rate and the number of hours it should take, you instead quote a total price for the whole project. With a fixed price quote, clients know exactly how much the project is going to cost them. They no longer need to worry about your hourly rate or how many hours you will bill them before the job is completed. They no longer need to worry about whether you'll hit an unexpected snag that'll cost them more time and thus money. All they need to worry about is whether you produce what they think they asked you to produce. Note, think is a critical word here, which I'll come back to in a minute. With an hourly agreement, you don't agree to produce a defined scope of work. You just agree that you have the skills needed to work on their project and that you'll work on their project for as long as it's mutually agreeable. But with a fixed price contract, you've agreed to produce the defined scope of work and at a set price. The reason that clients feel comfortable with fixed price projects is because they've shifted a lot of the risk of the project over to you. In particular, and in the client's mind, it doesn't matter if it takes you 20% longer or 100% longer to do the work than you thought it would take because they didn't agree to pay you by the hour. So if a fixed price project shifts the risk to you, why would you want to take on a fixed price project? For starters, clients love this kind of arrangement. If you propose to do a job for a fixed price and your competitor proposes to do it by the hour, then you'll likely have the upper hand. With hourly work, there's always contractual wiggle room for someone to charge more than the client thought they would be charged. The second big reason you'd want to propose a fixed price project is because once you become efficient at the kind of work you do, you'll know that you can do it much faster than others and avoid common pitfalls that they'll likely fall into. If you can do a project faster than your competitors, 
then there's an opportunity for you to charge about the same or maybe a little less and make a nice margin. So let's say you want to bid your next project at a fixed price. How much should you charge? No matter what, you'll want to make more than your hourly rate since you're taking on risk. But how much more? Well, with fixed price projects, the real question is, how much value will you produce for the client? My first foray into fixed price projects was on a maintenance contract. I had built a database project for a physical therapy company in Southern California. The client was happy with the results from that first project, but an intermittent connectivity issue kept affecting what I had built. My client had an IT company on retainer, and I asked them to monitor the scheduled jobs to see if the connectivity issues were affecting us. If so, I gave them instructions to rerun the job. Once a week or two, I'd log in and notice that the jobs had failed. I would rerun the jobs myself and remind my client and the IT company that I would like them to monitor for failures. But my request went unanswered, and I kept finding that the IT company didn't monitor the jobs like I'd requested multiple times. Realizing that their failure to monitor was making me look bad, I decided that we'd monitor the jobs if they wouldn't. I asked Katya, my assistant at the time, to check on the jobs three times a week. If the job had failed, she'd let me know and I'd log in, get it running again, and bill them for my time to fix it. She also billed for her time to check the job. When I realized she was only charging five minutes each time she logged in to check, and that we were charging pennies on the dollar for the monitoring that the IT company would charge much more for, I asked Katya to bill a minimum of 15 minutes each time. Knowing Katya's billable rate at the time and one quarter of an hour of that rate felt like an appropriate price. After all, the client was getting value out of us discovering that the job had failed so we could fix it fast and they should pay for monitoring the job. I further rationalized her charging more time than it actually took in order to account for quote, context shifting, end quote. The justification that by the hour people used to charge more than it actually takes to do small amounts of work. Context shifting is a fancy way of saying that when you switch from one task to another, it takes your brain a certain amount of time to get into the flow. To re-remember the task at hand and where you were before shifting to some other task. With that rationalization, Many by-the-hour people create rules for themselves that they'll charge a minimum of a half hour or some amount of time, regardless of how long it actually takes them to do the work. What this amounts to is a game where they want the ease of charging by the hour, but also the reward of charging for value. Even with that rationalization, neither Katya nor I felt comfortable billing for more time than was actually put in. After talking about it, we decided to charge a fixed amount on a monthly basis. The amount of money that we charged was much more than the amount we would have otherwise charged if we simply billed five minutes each time she checked the job. And here's how. Her billable rate was $45 an hour. At five minutes per check, three times a week, and four weeks a month, 
we'd only bill for one hour and make $45 in a month if we had charged by the hour. But since we were billing as a fixed price project and realizing that $45 just wasn't worth it for us to take on the liability of doing the work that the IT company should have been doing, I decided we had to charge more. But how much? First, I thought about how much the IT company would charge to do the same work. Certainly, it'd be in the hundreds of dollars per month. Second, I understood that when those jobs failed, it caused all sorts of problems for the company and required hours by their staff to reconcile the data issues. By monitoring the jobs, we could catch those issues before they became bigger, more expensive problems. So how much would my client pay to avoid their staff having to spend hours to fix the data issues? I thought $300 per month was certainly much less than the cost of the problems that could be avoided. Was that a ripoff? I didn't think so at all, and neither did my client. Actually, they were quite relieved that we would ensure the jobs ran smoothly. That's a perfect example of when it makes sense to bill by the project instead of by the hour. When you expect to be efficient, so efficient that the amount of time you spend multiplied by your hourly rate is less than the value you deliver, you should bill as a fixed price project. But there's a caveat, and it's all about scoping. By scoping, I mean enumerating the scope of work, describing exactly what you'll deliver with the project. Since you're agreeing to a fixed price for a fixed scope of work, if you don't take the time to fully understand everything in the scope, but agree to deliver it, then you're still on the hook for it. What often happens with new entrepreneurs is they don't understand exactly what it is that they're agreeing to deliver. You, and only you, are responsible for defining the scope of work to ensure you know what you're agreeing to. You have to define it, the thing you're delivering, because your client likely doesn't even have a full grasp of what it is. They likely have a vision and a foggy one at that, but it's up to you to clarify what's in and out of the vision they've conveyed to you. This will require a varying degree of upfront work on your part to fully understand their vision, take whatever scope of work they give you, and fully define the scope of work that you are proposing to deliver. You have to do some research into exactly how you will pull off what they're asking you to do. It's time-consuming to fully flesh out the scope of work, but always, always propose your own scope of work. Do not simply agree to what they give you because it will likely have lots of holes in it. All of that research into the scope and all of the time and effort and conversations with the potential client to define the scope is traditionally not billable time when you propose a fixed price project. That means that you'll often provide this type of consulting to a client without getting paid. Many times, you'll do this work and provide the scoping and pricing, and the prospective client ends up not accepting your proposal. Each time that happens, you've wasted your time and potentially a ton of it. 
That's not the case with a by-the-hour contract. You typically spend a little time up front trying to anticipate the pitfalls in the scope because you're not on the clock yet. A glance at the request of scope is typically enough to realize if there are any big problems and to determine if there's a fit for you. But with fixed-price projects, you have to be more prudent, and that takes time. It's important that you vet potential clients as quickly as possible. If they're flaky, don't waste your time proposing a scope of work for them because they're unlikely to hire you. How much should you vet your prospective clients? That's a gut call you'll need to make. But if you think a prospective client is flaky, then that's a red flag you'll want to pay attention to. As part of a well-defined scope of work, you'll need to include what you intend to produce. There are a few other ways you can create rock-solid scopes of work to avoid the pitfalls that I didn't avoid in the past. The first thing I often do is to list what is explicitly excluded from the scope of work. This is especially pertinent if the client or a third party must do something that will affect your work. In these cases, be sure to include in the written scope of work a statement that you will not be doing that thing. Second, consider stating that only what's listed in the scope of work is included. You'd be surprised how many times I defined what I thought was a solid scope of work, but then at the end of the project, the client thought I was going to do something else that wasn't listed. They had it in their mind that I'd do even more though we hadn't discussed it, and it wasn't in the scope of work. By the way, when you get into a situation like this, the client will try to get you to do that extra work without charging them. So always include a statement that effectively says that only what's listed is included. Third, when the scope of work for a fixed price project changes, and it will, you must submit a change order. I would often explain to prospects that they can hire me by the hour or fixed price, and that's 100% their choice, really. I'd explain the pros and cons of each method. But I always recommended fixed price projects so they would have a budget for their project versus an unknown cost if they paid by the hour. I caveated that with fixed price projects, we were setting up a system where I had to be relentless about tracking every requested change. If the scope changed and resulted in my having to do more work, but the price didn't change, that wouldn't work for me. It only works if the price changes when the scope changes. That means you have to submit a change order for every change to the scope of work. And by every change, I mean every single change. You really should do this even for small changes that you won't charge for. Submit a $0 change order to document that you are providing value without charging extra. Why go through the trouble of submitting a $0 change order? The client will always want changes. At the beginning of a project, you're likely to just make the changes to keep them happy. After all, you think you'll have plenty of chances to submit change orders later. Plus, you don't want to piss off your client at the very beginning of the project, so you just do the extra work and don't charge them. 
shoot, you may not even let them know that the change is taking you extra time. After all, you're a team player, right? Here's the rub. At some point, after making a bunch of changes for free, you'll realize that it's time to start charging. The first time you bring up charging for a change, the client will ask you to throw it in at no cost. They'll say something like, it's a small change. What's the big deal? And they're right. The problem is they forgot or were never told about all those other small changes that you did for free. Remember all those minor tweaks you made in the beginning of the project and didn't charge for? Actually, do you even remember all the changes you made for free? Since you didn't document those changes, then after the fact, you'll probably only have a foggy recollection of all the changes and the time it took to do each one. If you have a foggy recollection, trust me, your client doesn't remember at all or really didn't even realize it was a change to begin with. So it's in your best interest to document every change made to the scope of work, even if you intend to do it for free. Start documenting those changes early in a project so that when the time comes to start charging for changes, you can remind your client of all the freebies you already threw in. At a minimum, send them an email each time to say you did them a solid. That way, you can pull those up, remind them of the free value you previously provided, and justify why you now need to charge for the extra they're requesting. Charging for change orders is a pain, but if you avoid this issue, it's at your own peril. Although you have the opportunity to make more money with fixed price projects, you also have the ability to lose your ass. The amount of work that you may have to do and at your cost can far outweigh the benefit if you really screw things up. Thankfully, that hasn't happened to me in any big way. In working on fixed price projects for several years, I never got myself into serious trouble and I never lost money. I credit this to the basic attribute of paying attention and charging for change orders. Generally speaking, I won more projects and made more money because I was capable of working on fixed price projects. Moving from hourly billing to fixed price projects was a big deal for us. It resulted in us winning more projects, earning more profit per project, and allowing us to hire more people. Fixed price projects were great. That is, until I discovered an even better way of charging for work. Recurring revenue. Although the change from working by the hour to fixed price projects was a big improvement, I had been hearing for a while about another model for pricing and getting paid, the recurring revenue model. One of the problems I faced for years was that we'd work on a project with a client, do a fantastic job, hand over the work, and that was it. That was the end of us working with the client. There wasn't another opportunity to work with or to make money from the client that we had just wowed. We were a one and done operation. Certainly, we would request a testimonial and referrals, and of course, we could add their project to our growing portfolio, but the opportunity to work with and monetize that client had passed. 
I wanted a way to continue working with the client and getting paid by that client after delivering the project. What other service could I offer to make that happen? My first step at solving that problem was to offer web hosting. Since the websites we built needed to run on servers, I thought, why not offer web hosting? So we offered web hosting to a few clients and they agreed to it. We purchased a plan from a web hosting company and marked up the cost by 30%. Later, I marked it up even more. Even though we were making a good percentage of profit on web hosting, it just wasn't that much money because web hosting is generally pretty cheap. Our hosting bill only cost about $100 a month, so we could only make about $30 in profit. Big deal, right? With only a few of these clients, it amounted to peanuts. It certainly wasn't enough to pay many bills or help with payroll. Honestly, it was more trouble than it was worth to only make $30 a month. One afternoon, I had lunch with the owner of a successful IT company. During lunch, he explained how years earlier, he shifted away from a break-fix model to manage services. In the break-fix model, he'd only make money by fixing something that was broken, a computer, network, or similar piece of hardware. Basically, he was responding to a one-time emergency. Once he fixed the problem, his work with the client was over until the next time something broke. With managed services, he and the client agreed up front to a recurring set of services, many of them preventative and a recurring price. The price was based on the number of people and computers the company had and would support. This led to more predictable work for him since those clients stayed even if something wasn't broken. He also told me that he had been operating with 100% recurring revenue for the past few years. He loved it, and he would never go back to break fix. Walking back to my office after lunch, he asked me if we had recurring revenue. I told him about the pittance of hosting fees we collected. He encouraged me by saying that was good, but that I should try to figure out how to repackage what we already offered as a recurring service. He promised that if I could figure that out, then it would unlock all sorts of opportunities. Back at the shop, I continued to think about it. Like every other web company on the planet, we sold websites to clients as projects. At the time, I hadn't yet figured out how to offer websites as a recurring service. After delivering a website, clients always want changes. Some change requests come right after we deliver the new website but many more come over time. These changes have to do with changes in their industry, market movements, pivots the company is making, updating content, new staff, and for many other reasons. Almost without fail, every client will request changes over time. Additionally, websites needed to be updated as internal and external software components are updated. Those were nerdy technical tasks but they were important nonetheless. As an example, we found that the typical website needs two and a half updates per week to stay current. Some of these updates include new features and others are security patches. Fail to apply too many of these patches and you're asking for your website to get hacked. Knowing it's important to keep a website up to date and that clients will want changes over time 
I decided to offer support packages as add-ons and after we delivered the new website. I also included intangibles such as keeping the credentials to their systems so we could log in at a moment's notice if there was an issue. Keeping credentials didn't cost us anything, but I made an argument that we only kept credentials for clients because if we had them for non-clients, it was a liability. That argument, which I still make today, is that if someone happened to hack their applications and we had their credentials in our possession, they could point to us as causing the problem. I didn't want to hold confidential information, credentials, and access to databases unless I was under contract to do so. Holding them was a liability, and I wanted to get paid for that liability so I could assure that we did it correctly. For clients, we'd safeguard those credentials, but we deleted credentials for past clients who declined our support package. That meant they would be 100% on their own to manage their website. I'd also ensure that someone on staff understood how to work on their system. This was a big intangible that cost real dollars. After delivering a product, the person who built it could end up quitting the company. The potential for this happening increases as the application gets older. When that happens, you find yourself in a situation where no one understands how the website works. Yes, we can figure it out, but that takes between a few hours and a few days sometimes. If the person who built the website left the company and no one else knew how to work on it, and then the client asked for a small change, it could turn into a big effort. The client wouldn't be happy if we charged, say, two hours for a small change that the previous developer could have done in 10 minutes. Without a support package, the client would be taking the risk that no one knew how to work on their site. With my support package, I took that risk, before a fee, of course. I'd take the hit if we had to spin up a new developer on their website, and I'd essentially guarantee that someone would be able to make a quickie change whenever the client needed one. I started successfully selling these plans at the end of most projects. Slowly but surely, I was getting recurring revenue, but it still wasn't adding up to a lot of money. Fast forward to today. All of our revenue, 100% of our revenue, comes from recurring revenue. Once we switched to focusing on digital marketing, it was a natural fit. With digital marketing, clients continually need service such as social media posts, engagement with their audience, writing content for SEO purposes and newsletters, and creating, monitoring, and improving the effectiveness of online advertising campaigns. Since we focus on helping clients with their marketing, we're with them for the long haul. We agree upfront to the services we'll provide on a recurring basis and how much that will cost every month. It's a win-win. Clients know we're going to continually focus on their marketing and we know they'll continue to be clients and pay us. I even finally figured out how to charge for websites on a recurring basis. With the old model, which most of our competitors still cling to, there is one opportunity for them to monetize a new website. With that, they have to maximize the price regardless of the actual cost to build the website. A marketing website 
typically costs $5,000 to $20,000, sometimes more. That's a lot to pay up front. Once the new website is delivered, clients will want changes, which most agencies then charge $150 per hour or more to make. If you use the agency for hosting, they charge for that separately. And if you need anything else, like new stock photos or a new security certificate, they'll charge you for that as well. Basically, you get nickeled and dimed as a client and have to buy everything a la carte. It starts to wear you out after a while. Knowing I wanted recurring revenue and not project revenue, I beat my head against the wall until I figured it out. I eventually realized that I needed to stop thinking of the value of the website as a one-time transaction. After all, most of the websites we create don't take so much time to build that they even justify a $10,000 price tag. I thought, what if we essentially gave away a website but charged for all of the ongoing support and hosting fees? What if we followed the model of the shaving razor industry? Basically, give away the handle and make our money on the razor blades instead. I wanted to wrap up all the project and recurring work into a simple and consistent monthly fee. If we did that, then we'd have to basically amortize the cost of the upfront work as well as provide continuing value by making updates to clients' websites, patching them on a regular basis, hosting them, backing them up, and performing other background services to ensure they remain fast, healthy, and hack-free. Once we broke our addiction to charging project fees for new websites, we had unlocked how we could offer everything we provide as a recurring service. We finally had our answer. But Eric, what if you build the website and then the client leaves? You just created a brand new website and only got paid for a month or two. Correct. We had to be sure that the client would stick around for a while. For that reason, we require a minimum commitment of 12 months. If they stay longer, they'll still get all the same recurring services, changes, patches, and backups, but we're guaranteed to get paid for at least a year. But Eric, what if the client takes their website and leaves before a year is up? Another great question. To ensure that a client can't just take their website elsewhere after a month or two, we always host their website on our server. We won't provide a backup to the website until after they've satisfied their minimum commitment of 12 months. But Eric, what if they break the minimum commitment? Sure, you'll keep the website, but you won't get paid. Valid point. This is a risk for sure, and it's happened before where clients simply default on their contract with us and stop paying the monthly fee. In that case, we don't hand over the website because they haven't finished paying for it. If you have a loan on a car and stop making payments on it, it's not yours, and the repo man will come take it from you. Same with our websites. Although we have been screwed by this in the past, it's been few and far between. Having addressed all those concerns and having after-priced websites as a service for a couple of years now, it turns out this model works. Actually, it works incredibly well. Clients love that they don't have to stroke a big check up front and then get nickel and dimed later for ongoing services. 
They love that they have a long-term partner they can call on for whatever change they want and will get it done at no extra fee. In turn, we love the recurring revenue that websites bring. Sure, it takes our web designers a week or more of concentrated effort to create a new website, but after that, we continue to get paid month after month. We've aligned our interests with our clients' interests on websites and all of our services, and it's a winner. Recurring revenue brought forth a number of other improvements to the business that I didn't realize at first. Once we began getting most of our revenue from recurring services, we realized we still had business practices in place that just weren't necessary. One example is timesheets. When we worked by the hour, we had to have our staff meticulously report how much time they worked on each project, what they did, and for how long. This was a daily chore put on everyone in the company. Invoices to our clients derived from these timesheets, so I wanted to make sure that timesheet entries were accurate. Tracking all that data is time-consuming and meticulous. It's easy to make mistakes. That meant that someone had to review all timesheet entries before invoices were generated to ensure clients got accurate invoices. Guess who got stuck with that task? Yep, me. The whole time tracking process was a huge pain for those tracking time. And for me, who had to spend hours reviewing timesheet entries. It seemed like we were fighting a losing battle trying to get everyone to fill in these stupid timesheets. And it was getting worse as the company grew. We carried the practice of time tracking forward even after we switched to recurring revenue. We continued to track time simply because that's the way we thought companies operated. We had always tracked time, and like it or not, that's just what agencies do. After all, other agencies we looked up to did it, so it must be smart, right? Wrong. After much debate and thinking through the impact of the change, we stopped collecting time. We simply stopped caring about how much time went into a project. No longer wanted to track time, we canceled the subscription to our time tracking software. No longer burdened with the daily chore of filling out timesheets for every project, everyone was happier. Another great thing about recurring revenue is that your finances are predictable. Our original CPA once asked Kevin and me how the next quarter was shaping up for us. At the time, we were doing project work almost exclusively. My response to the CPA was something along the lines of, I don't know, we could double our revenue next month or we could be out of business. That's the problem with revenue that's not recurring. There's a saying in entrepreneurship that you eat what you kill. With project work, you don't even know what's available to be killed until it walks up to you. Although we were getting pretty lucky that clients with projects kept coming to us, we simply had no way of predicting how many projects would come our way in the future. Any prediction was a wild guess. I hated that feeling. With recurring revenue, we're not only able to project our finances out next month, but for as long as we'd like. Since our clients pay us the same amount month after month, the only thing that would change is if we get more clients, which I'm glad to report happens on a regular basis, 
or if a client drops us. As long as we monitor if our clients are happy with us, which we do, we anticipate problems before they happen. The goal with recurring revenue is to preserve what you have and get more of it. Since our revenue and the services we provide are consistent, so are our expenses. With recurring revenue, I finally have the ability to see into the future and confidently predict where we'll be next quarter, next year, and beyond. The benefits of recurring revenue go on and on. I could write another book focused exclusively on recurring revenue. Like the IT company owner who encouraged me, I highly encourage you to find a way to obtain recurring revenue. Look at your project pricing packages and focus on ways you could transform them into recurring services. Let's say my limo buddy, whom I mentioned before, wants to transition to recurring revenue. Instead of charging clients each time they use the limo, imagine if he offered them a subscription. If his best customers pay him $500 each time they use the limo, but only use it two to three times a year, what if instead he offered them a subscription for $150 per month to use it up to three times a year? Instead of collecting between $1,000 and $1,500 a year, he could collect $150 every month. If he did that, he'd guarantee to earn $1,800 a year on the customer instead of just $500 each time the customer called. As a perk, he could offer a VIP service for these kinds of customers. Perks like priority booking over non-VIP customers and a bottle of champagne in the limo every time. Those perks may not cost the company that much more, but his customers will be wowed by his customer service. Another example of where recurring services could work well is with clothing. My tailor runs a shop where he has suits, shoes, and high-end casual wear for sale. Each time I go in to get something tailored, I look at his displays and I usually buy an item that costs around $200. It's great to come home with a new piece of high quality clothing, but I only buy from him when I need something tailored and go to his shop, which is about once a year. Instead of selling only by the item and only selling to me once a year, what if he created a VIP club? Let's say I paid him $100 a month to be in the club. As a VIP, he could send me a newsletter letting me know what's in fashion and what he recommends for me. He could track my wardrobe and make recommendations based on what he knows I already own. Every month, I'd pay the $100 whether I got something or not. When I needed something or when his marketing convinced me that I needed something, I could use whatever funds had accumulated to pay for it. So one month, I may buy only a tie but two months later, I may buy an expensive sports coat. If he created a VIP club, then it would help me keep my wardrobe up to date, which I surely would appreciate, and it would keep revenue coming in the door for him in between my visits to get something tailored. Every business is different. Think about what you sell to your customers as a project and rethink about how you could sell it to them as a recurring service. Once you unlock that, and once you unlock recurring revenue, you've created a predictable business for yourself. Payment terms. Payment terms refers to how long a client has before paying your invoice. 
For my early Navy contracting days, I had learned that net 30 was the norm. At least in that business, it was. The net in net 30 means that the person or company being invoiced has 30 days from the date of the invoice to pay it in full. Net also refers to the balance due after all discounts are applied. So let's say I give you an invoice on December 1st for $1,000, apply a $50 discount, and payment terms are net 30. You'd be expected to pay $950 no later than December 31st. Many clients will request payment terms from you. The rationale is that once they receive your invoice, they need time to review it, approve it, and send you the payment. The larger the company, the longer it will take you to get paid. The longest payment terms, also simply referred to as terms, that I've ever agreed to was net 45. That happened when I was still a young company, wanted to work for a somewhat large regional corporation, and frankly, I needed the work. Although I agreed to net 45, it was confusing because most of my clients were on net 30 and this one was different. That meant we had an administrative burden of keeping track of what payment terms we had extended to which client. It's important to know the terms given to each client so you know when each client's invoice is late. I've heard other entrepreneurs talk about clients who demand net 45, net 60, and even longer. The longer you go without getting paid, the more susceptible you are to cash flow crunches. Earlier, I used the example of submitting an invoice on December 1st with net 30 terms and the due date of December 31st. But here's how it would likely play out. Let's say you're working on a long-term project by the hour. Terms are net 30, and you can only invoice once a month, which is also pretty standard. That means you start working on November 1st and work all through November 30th. On December 1st, you can run a report that shows how many hours were worked for the client during the previous month, multiply by the billable rate, and send the invoice that day. If you're efficient, then you and your admin or your accountant will send out the invoice on December 1st. But more likely than not, there will be questions about individual time charges. Remember when I said it would take me hours to review time charges submitted by my team? It would also take days for them to turn in all of their hours before I could even do my review. All those delays add up. What if I had a busy day on December 1st and couldn't get to it that day? The invoice will be delayed. What if I couldn't get to it the next day? Another delay. Once I finally got to it, I needed clarification from someone on the team, but they were on vacation. Another delay. And what if the clock didn't start ticking on December 1st because that was a Saturday and we waited until Monday, December 3rd to start this process? Another delay. Unless you're on top of time charges on a regular basis, as in every day you're reviewing charges as they happen, the invoice generated in December for the work performed in November will be delayed due to your own administrative overhead. You finally get the invoice out a few days into December, let's say December 6th. The day you create the invoice is technically when the clock starts ticking for the client even if they haven't received the invoice yet. 
But practically, if there's a delay in them receiving it, then you'll often adjust your invoice date out of fairness to them. It's in your best interest to get the invoice to your client as soon as it's produced. Any delay between when you produce it and when they receive it can result in a delay in your payment being processed and a delay in you getting your money. For that reason, we email all of our invoices to clients. We also email because printing an invoice, stuffing the invoice into an envelope, stamping the envelope, and getting the envelope to the post office will incur labor and time on our side. There's also the expense of paper and postage, and this whole process will delay the invoice going out. Mind you, you paid your people and you paid rent and you incurred all other expenses throughout November when you were doing the work. In early December, as you work to create the invoice, you also have the administrative expense of creating the invoice. Then as you wait for the payment to arrive, you're continuing to pay those same expenses. The client receives your invoice for work performed in November on, say, December 6th. They'll know that the earliest they have to pay it by is January 6th. Even though they may be able to pay you sooner, they are unlikely to do so because they'd prefer to keep the cash in their bank account. After all, you're not even expecting payment until January 6th. So why would they pay you sooner? Sometimes a client won't mail you the check until the due date. In that case, if the mail goes out on January 6th, you won't get it until the 9th or the 10th. Other times, clients will intentionally pay a little late. They may delay payment a few days or a week. No big deal, right? But that just pushed the payment out for you until around January 15th or so. You may not receive the payment until mid-January or later for work you started paying for in November. Since you're doing the work for a client, and they're going to pay you later, you've effectively extended them credit. You've given them a line of credit, and you're spending your own money on their project while hoping they will pay you back. Even though you've given them credit, chances are you didn't have them fill out a credit application and probably have no idea how likely they are to even be able to pay you back. Isn't that crazy? Working on credit means you're at risk of not getting paid. The smaller and the newer the client, the more risk that you won't get paid. In the past 10 years, I've had multiple clients stiff me. I funded their operations without so much as running a credit check on them, and they never paid me. But Eric, if they don't pay you, can't you just sue them? One client who stiffed me had been paying all along until we delivered the final product. A few days later, we delivered the last invoice. He said he'd pay that last invoice, but days turned into weeks, which turned into months, and the payment never showed up. I finally had my lawyers take action on him, and we won a judgment for the full amount. But even a judgment against someone will not ensure you'll get paid. With the judgment in hand, my lawyer said we could submit a garnishment order to his bank to collect from his bank account. All they needed was a copy of a previous check he gave me, and they'd submit the judgment to his bank, and his bank would be forced to pay us. How cool is that? 
I dug up copies of the checks that the client had used to pay us and gave them to our lawyers. They submitted the garnishment forms to the bank. A few days later, the bank responded, rejecting our garnishment request. Turned out that our contract and judgment were for an LLC that the client formed for the project, but the check he used to pay us was from his other business. The two didn't match. The garnishment paperwork was for a different company than the company that controlled the bank account he had been paying us from. That was the end of the line for pursuing collecting a few thousand dollars from that client. Although I didn't get paid for the work we did, it was a huge lesson learned for me. It emphasized that offering payment terms is literally extending credit to clients. The credit worthiness of your clients needs to be taken into consideration. With that, I had my lawyers draft a personal guarantee. On a case-by-case basis, I had clients sign the personal guarantee for the next year or so. With a personal guarantee, the person signing the contract commits the company and themselves personally to paying us. But I stopped using personal guarantees shortly thereafter because I learned a more valuable lesson. Don't work with untrustworthy clients. Also, get paid up front. When you get paid in advance, it doesn't matter as much if they one day stop paying you. Sure, you lose out on anticipated revenue, but at least you'll have minimized the work you do for free. To summarize payment terms, it's in your best interest to make them as short as possible. Net 30 is better than net 90, but net 15 is better than net 30. Also, Try to shorten the amount of time it takes you to get paid. The longer the terms, the longer you're funding your client's project and the more at risk you are for non-payment. Lines of credit. The longer you wait to get paid, the more likely it is you'll run low on money. In extreme cases, you could run out of money waiting to get paid. In business, running out of money is a bad thing. Avoid it at all costs. This is when a line of credit, also referred to as an LOC, comes in handy. With a line of credit, you get pre-approved to borrow up to a certain amount of money, but you can borrow in small amounts as needed. Line of credits get you through the low points in times of cash flow crunches when you're waiting to get paid. Let's say that when you're waiting to receive a big payment on an invoice, your bank account balance dips low. So low that it either makes you nervous or you're unable to pay other bills or payroll. You can borrow money from your line of credit to get you through the cash crunch while you wait for your invoice to get paid. Once you do get paid, you can pay the line of credit back in part or in full. When's the best time to open a line of credit? Any time before you actually need it. Like any other loan, it takes time to process your loan request. You must fill out paperwork, get approved, and sign documents. All that can take weeks. When you submit the paperwork, your bank will want to see your finances for the previous and current years. If they see that you're not doing very well, they may not approve your loan request. 
or they may approve you for an amount lower than you requested. If you're not in need of a line of credit now, then now is the perfect time to submit for it because your finances are probably looking pretty good. Apply for the loan, get as large of a line of credit as they'll give you, and it'll be in place when times get tough. Get it now while you can and let it sit there until you need it. Getting paid upfront. In a perfect world, you'd get paid in advance of starting the work. That way the money is in the bank and the client funds their work versus you having to scrape your money together to fund it. Imagine if you got paid net negative 30, as in 30 days before you even started the work. The money would just be sitting there and you should rarely, if ever, have to worry about cash flow. Getting paid way in advance is cash flow utopia. It happens sometimes, but is rare. A much more realistic scenario is net zero, which is what we now aim for at Array Digital. What I mean by that is we get paid the same day we invoice and the same day we start for the next month. Actually, we don't invoice the client. We send them a sales receipt because they pay when billed. Here's how we pull that off. When we onboard a new client, we stress to them that we accept ACH, also known as Automated Clearing House Payments. ACH means that we have the ability and permission to withdraw our payment directly from our client's bank accounts. So on the day of the month that we charge a client, we process an ACH payment and get funded immediately. Since we focus exclusively on recurring revenue, we always bill the client for the same amount on the same day of the month. It's highly predictable, all-inclusive pricing, and spelled out in our contracts. With that, there's no need for our clients to require extra time to review and process our invoice. Net terms are no longer needed. We also accept credit card payments. Credit card payments aren't as good for us because we incur a credit card fee, typically 3% of the total charged. But I'd rather pay that and be 99% sure I'll get paid on net zero than to have to wait for a check to arrive and clear before getting paid. But there's another downside to accepting credit cards. Chargebacks. A client could dispute your credit card charge after it's been approved and after you've been paid. When that happens, the credit card company immediately withdraws the disputed amount from your bank account and then notifies you of the chargeback. They take the money back before you even have a chance to plead your case. There's technically an appeals process that allows you to explain why you should get paid. But in my experience, I've never won one of these appeals, and I've appealed at least a dozen throughout the years. Credit card companies always seem to side with the customer. Because of the possibility of chargebacks and the hefty fees, we discourage payments by credit cards. We still have clients who pay by check. I prefer not to have clients pay by check, but some insist. And if we don't allow it, then it could be a deal breaker. In the end, I'm willing to take a little risk every once in a while on payment terms, but I make sure to cap our risk. When a client has decided to not pay by ACH or credit card, 
and insist on paying by check, then we strictly enforce payment terms and late fees. They get a warning on the due date if their invoice isn't paid in full, and seven days later, we hit them with a late fee. After completing a few projects for my first Elance client, she realized the legacy technology she initially had me working on was so inefficient and outdated that she needed it replaced. I gave her a fixed price quote of $18,000. She accepted, but asked if it was okay if she extended the payments to as long as she needed to eventually pay me off. Eager to get the work and very naive, I agreed. As I started to work on the project, she requested changes. Each change resulted in a change order that she agreed to. She made small payments of about $500 a month, even as the amount owed continued to increase. She requested more changes, which I made. The balance due continued to climb until one day I realized she had accumulated a balance of $35,000. I was shocked when I realized how much she owed, especially so when the payments slowed down substantially. I realized I was in a pickle. She lived in a different state than me, and I had never met her in person. I knew little about her and didn't have a solid contract vetted by a lawyer at the time. Think I had her fill out a credit app? Nope, of course not. Who does that? Geez, what was I thinking? I was really exposed and at great risk of getting stiffed. All I had was her word that she would pay me. I also realized that since I wasn't charging her late fees and other creditors like credit card companies were, it was in her best interest to pay off the other creditors before me. I had allowed her to get seriously in debt with me, and I had volunteered to go to the back of the line for those waiting to get paid. That is not a good place to be. She eventually made good and paid me 100% but it took about two years. What a relief when that final payment was made. I learned a valuable lesson. Never wanting to be in the back of the line again, I decided I had to start charging late fees. I hate the process of trying to collect payment for work I've already done. It's a huge waste of time and money to create a collection process. I didn't go into business to become a collection agency, and I no longer mess around with that. The payment terms we now offer ensure we get paid at the beginning of each month. Worst case, a check doesn't come in for a couple of weeks and we'll suspend a client for non-payment. At least we'll only lose payment for a few weeks of service, not months. I'd much rather get paid by ACH or credit card and be done with it. When it comes to payment terms, don't automatically give in to long terms. Always try to get better terms. You deserve to get paid and paid quickly. Any delay in getting paid puts you at risk. If you take too much risk and it doesn't work out in your favor, you'll run out of money. When you run out of money, the game is over. As the founder and operator of your company, making sure you don't run out of money is one of your main responsibilities a significant one at that. You cannot run out of money. The longer payment terms you offer, the higher the chances you'll have cash flow issues 
and potentially run out of money. Paying yourself. One of the hardest parts of becoming an entrepreneur is the unpredictability of your finances. With a day job, you get a predictable paycheck. Not so with running your own business. Most people are familiar with the formula revenue minus expenses equal profit. Guess what part of the formula your pay comes from? You pay yourself from profit. What's left over after you pay all your company expenses? But not all of your profits will go towards your pay because profit is needed elsewhere in the company too. Your business needs to accumulate a financial cushion in the bank for surprises and to withstand cash flow crunches, like when your clients don't pay on time or an economic downturn. You'll also want to reinvest some of your profits back into your company so you can grow. In reality, only about one-third to one-half of your profits should go towards your pay. The amount that you need to pay yourself is directly linked to your lifestyle. To determine the right pay for yourself, evaluate how much profit your company is making and how much you need to live. You may need to reconcile the two if your company isn't making quite enough to fund your lifestyle. Your lifestyle is comprised of three different types of expenses. The expenses you must pay. The expenses you want to pay. And bullshit wasteful spending. We're going to approach these three in reverse order, starting with the third bullet. Bullshit wasteful spending. Bullshit wasteful spending refers to expenses you can easily do without. I'm talking about going out, buying rounds of drinks at a bar, eating out at restaurants, splurging on entertainment, buying new clothes, and subscribing to multiple music and media accounts. When you first start off on your own, all that needs to go bye-bye. But Eric, nope, sorry. There's just no excuse for wasting your money when you first step out on your own. Cut it out immediately. Besides, you need to be totally obsessed with your business if you want it to succeed. There will be little downtime to go out anyways. You won't need new clothes. Wear your old ones. Do with what you have and save your money as you work to get your business off the ground. The second category of expenses are those that you want to pay for. I'm talking about your nice car, your gym membership, a new phone, even where you live. All of these things can likely be downgraded if you want. Do you really need a new BMW with a $700 per month payment? Or will an eight-year-old car with a $155 per month payment suffice for now? Do you really need to live in that dope condo downtown for $1,750 a month? Or is it worth it to move in with a friend, split the rent, and reduce your rent to $750 per month? It comes down to personal choice. It also comes down to whether you can afford it. I'm not saying you have to cut these things, but you should acknowledge that they can be cut if needed. Everyone will have a different level they're willing to cut down to. And everyone also has different stakeholders, 
Example, spouse or children who get a vote on this too. Think about what you could cut if needed and at least put a rough plan together. If times get tough, cut a bit more into this second category of spending. The last category we'll touch on are expenses you must pay. Those are things like food, utilities, internet, and housing, your basic requirements. You can cut some luxury out of the expenses you want to pay, but you need a roof over your head and can't cut out but so much of these required expenses. You can't do much about these kinds of expenses. This is what I refer to as your base level of living expenses. When I went off on my own, I had a conversation with my wife about finances. We had to cut the bullshit expenses. Luckily, I already had some clients and we were bringing in revenue. I didn't have a lot of luxury items and I could continue to pay for the expenses that I wanted and needed like my house and my car. Really, I didn't need to cut much at all. I had saved up a nice financial buffer and I had a service that people needed. The last part was the key for me, so I'll repeat it. I had a service that was in demand. That's so important and is why I recommend that new entrepreneurs validate their idea before doing anything else. Will someone buy what you're selling? Pay yourself from your profits and fund the gap between what your company can pay you and what you need with the money you saved from your day job and from your freelancing. Once you've looked at your personal living expenses and cut out the bullshit, how are you going to pay yourself? There are two ways to do this. The most common way is to take whatever is left over from profits as you need to pay personal bills. That means that as your personal bills come due, example, car payment or house payment, you take money out of the company and pay for those personal bills. I've done this in the past, and what it amounts to is erratically paying yourself. I also felt tremendously guilty each time I took money out of the bank and worried that I was being too greedy at the expense of my business. Your company needs money, sometimes badly. And paying yourself only what's left over means that you constantly subjugate your personal needs to the needs of the business. If you're single and are okay with a monk life lifestyle while you build up your company, then this kind of life may be just fine for you. Take from the company only when you need it. But if you're married with kids or in a similar situation, you and your family probably need a bit more. After paying myself erratically for a solid year and fretting about it every time I took money out of the company for myself, and after many intense discussions about finances with my wife, I switched to the second way of paying myself. The opposite of erratically paying yourself is to set it and forget it. I set my salary and paid myself on a consistent basis. The salary I selected was enough to pay my bills, house, car, food, and gas, and just a bit more. But I wasn't funding an extravagant lifestyle. 
I set myself up on salary and I always paid myself the same amount on the same frequency. This was technically accomplished with a scheduled transfer from my business bank account to my personal bank account. That provided me with stability in my personal finances and on the company side. I knew what I needed to set aside for my most valuable employee, me. In addition to the base salary, I paid myself a portion of profits, about one-third. I'd look back at the previous month, calculate profits, and cut myself a check. Sometimes that was a small amount, sometimes it was a bigger amount, and sometimes it didn't happen at all. As time went on, my business matured, and as the finances became more predictable, this bonus also became more predictable. I've never been one to pull too much out of the company for myself. I'd prefer to live a modest to slightly above modest lifestyle and keep the funds in the company to fuel its growth. It will take a long time for me to grow the company to where I want it to go, and the company will require a lot of cash. I have to build up my personal nest egg, but I have to build up the company first before I extract riches. That time will come before the foreseeable future we're in building mode. So now it's time for you to figure out how to pay yourself. I would start by paying yourself only what you need to survive. Then as time goes on, and if your company is making more money and profit, increase the amount you take out to help your personal finances even more. Then when your company can support it, Determine a set amount to withdraw on a regular basis and automate your pay. Chapter takeaways. Number one, billing by the hour is the easiest way to start charging clients, but it's also limiting. You can only make more money if you put in more time. Number two, with fixed price projects, you have the opportunity to charge more based on the value of the work you are doing. Fixed price projects allow you to separate how much time you put into a project from the amount you charge. Number three, both billing by the hour and fixed price projects don't provide a lot of predictability into your future finances. Number four, recurring revenue is the most sought after type of revenue. Number five, with recurring revenue, you can accurately predict your future revenue and expenses and start to determine your growth trajectory. Number six, test creative ways that you can switch from billing by the hour or by the project to a recurring revenue model. Number seven, minimize your payment terms. You always want to be paid sooner rather than later for the work you do for your clients. Number eight, lines of credit can help with cash flow problems. Number nine, the best time to get a line of credit from a bank is when you don't need one. When you apply, get as large of a line of credit as you can. You may need it later. Number 10, always try to get paid upfront. You can accomplish this by charging when your invoices or sales receipts are sent. Set your terms and expectations early on with clients 
and collect your money via ACH. Number 11. When starting out, pay yourself the minimum needed to pay for your must-have personal expenses like a car and home. Cut out the unnecessary expenses like dining out. And finally, number 12. As time goes on and your company makes more profit, begin to settle into a set amount you'll pay yourself from the company on a predetermined basis. Are you a business owner looking to reach more customers and grow? Array Digital is a world-class digital marketing agency that partners with companies just like yours. We've worked with top brands throughout the country and love helping businesses generate more revenue, employ more people, and serve more customers. Reach out to find out more about our award-winning website design, SEO, advertising, and social media. You can find us online at thisisarray.com or call us at 757-333-3021.